I'm Damian Willis, and this is The Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News, a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the biggest stories of the week. This week, we're talking to NMSU professors Martha Desmond and Tim Wright. Desmond is a Regents professor in the Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Conservation Ecology while Wright is a professor in the biology department. We're diving into the mystery of a recent die-off of migratory birds in New Mexico. In 2020, possibly hundreds of thousands of migratory birds were found dead across the state. We'll talk to Tim and Martha about what caused it, what is being done to address it, and a new partnership with Los Alamos National Labs that is designed to help. Wright explained the program will provide graduate and undergraduate students with research experience, life skills, critical thinking, and broader experiences to be successful leaders in the face of rapidly changing biomes. During the academic year, students will conduct mentored research on migratory bird biology. During the summer, They'll intern in agencies, present their work at scientific conferences, take core courses in migration biology uh, with a foreign study component, scientific communication and science and ethics, and work with individualized mentor teams. But what does all that mean on a practical level? This week, I'm grateful to have Tim and Martha joining us. First, Martha, Tim, thanks for joining us this week on The Reporter's Notebook. Thanks for having us, Damien. Glad to be here. Thank you, Damien. Let's just kind of start at the beginning. Would one of you like to talk about the birds that died in 2020 in New Mexico? I'll go ahead and start with that. And I'll just say in 2020, it's hard to believe it's been two years now Um, We experienced a large-scale mortality across much of New Mexico and a little bit into some of our surrounding states. It was an event that was brought on by a large uh, weather event where we saw a um, large change in temperature over a 24-hour period, but also other things like snow, rain, and some serious uh, or high winds as well. What we found from that event is that although the birds died during that weather event, it was really there were a lot of other factors that were involved and mainly ongoing drought where a lot of birds were in very poor condition even prior to coming into the state of New Mexico. So when we looked at the condition of birds that that had died, they had they were basically starving. You know, they were using flight muscle for energy reserves. They had no food in their stomachs. They were in very poor condition. Tim might want to add. I was just going to add that in addition to to the the drought, there we have a suspicion and we don't yet have great evidence that some of these birds may have been pushed off their regular migratory routes potentially by wildfires further west in california so we're seeing some species migrating through or, or dying here that we don't typically see migrating through and so that sort of emphasizes that migration is a very complex topic and that there are a lot of factors that uh, influence how well migratory birds are, are doing and able to complete 
these long journeys that they undertake. And so, Martha, if if they were healthier, would they maybe have made it to their destinations? I think if some of them were healthier, or they they probably would have made it to their destinations. Another factor is, you know, this large scale weather event really forced these birds down into some areas where there weren't a lot of there wasn't a lot of food available for them to put on additional energy to continue their um, their journey. So it would be a combination of if they were healthier and if they had um, come out, you know, birds migrate at night too. birds are not. Most of these birds are nocturnal migrants and the, that weather event, which forced them down may have put some in areas where because of ongoing drought in New Mexico and surrounding areas, there wasn't a lot of food available for them to put on uh, additional reserves to continue their journey. So it would be a combination of what was available on the ground and the condition they were in when they came down. And this might be overly simplistic, but if I read it correctly, and recall correctly, it seems like when you previously spoke to the Sun News, Martha, after this happened, when we were trying to figure out exactly what was going on, it sounded like they may have also kind of gotten a little bit confused in their migratory routes. It's possible that they were confused. It was more that I think also just birds, it was it was like a major fallout. They just, they had no choice. They had to come down out of the skies because of that weather event. And it was also, you know, they were in poor condition at the time. So it's possible some had, there was some confusion about migratory routes, but I don't really feel comfortable in saying yes to that. Gotcha. And and that kind of comes from the clarity that we have learned since that happened back in 2020. I, I think part of the, the problem with uh, answering these questions is it's a little bit retrospective. We're, we're having to do some detective work and we don't necessarily have the basis of data, the regular monitoring to know what's happening in a regular year to fully understand what went differently in 2020. And that was part of the motivation for Martha and I to work together to try to create the migration biology program at NMSU. That's that's interesting because it creates that baseline that you can compare extraordinary years to. Exactly. And and uh, so that's that's what we're hoping to do with the program and especially by not just us, but by training a next generation of scientists to understand migration and to be uh, ready to, to understand both how it can go well and uh, how it can go off the tracks, as it were. That's a really nice segue into the partnership that NMSU has just started with Los Alamos National Labs. Can each of you talk a little bit about that partnership? Sure, I'd be happy to start. Um, so, so as this was happening in the fall of 2020, and immediately after, Martha and I were, were both ornithologists, meaning we we study birds and love birds, and do it in a scientific manner, and that's our our faculty job here at NMSU. We were talking about this issue and and how we were handicapped by not knowing a lot. We did request some funding from National Science Foundation to try to investigate it and didn't make much headway there, but an opportunity came up 
for a training grant from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Now, that may seem like an unlikely place for migration, but <laughs> birds are considered a, a natural resource. And so the USDA was very receptive to the training program we put together that involved people from a number of institutions and a number, well, a couple of institutions and a number of different sort of divisions within New Mexico State. So I can turn it over to Martha to describe how this collaboration was built. Sure. And so we developed a team and some of us, you know, a number of us were really already working together. So, for example, in addition to Los Alamos National Lab, White Sands Missile Range has a very large um, involvement in this. And it actually started funding some projects related to the avian mortality even prior to us putting this initiative together and actually work with White Sands Missile Range started in 2020. And Bureau of Land Management folks were also very much involved in working with us on the mortality event. But we pulled our group together, and the idea with this training grant is to mentor leadership in natural resources and specifically related to natural resource, uh, specifically related to migratory birds, and at both the graduate level and at the undergraduate level, and to um, pair students so that we have undergraduates that are working as part of teams with graduate students and faculty members specifically related to the management of migratory birds. Some of it may be directly or is directly related to the mortality event, and some of these projects may be a little broader. And And that kind of goes back to what Tim was saying, just about establishing that baseline Mm -hmm. and, and trying to figure out what a normal year should look like. Absolutely. And so as an example, too, Tim and I are both working um, with the White Sands Missile Range, and we're monitoring migration and birds, nocturnal migrants that move through um, the missile range and looking at the effects of artificial light and what involvement that may have had in terms of mortality because birds migrate with celestial cues. And so during, um, especially during days where there's large scale weather events, birds can get confused by lighting and they get disoriented by lighting. And that actually can um, impact uh, mortality. We've seen that with the uh, Twin Towers monument in New York City. Absolutely. Which uh, completely throws them off their cues. Yes. Yeah. So the White Sands Missile Range work is grows out of that. Uh, I think a growing awareness that our our light systems at night could be messing with bird migration, and and the navigation aspect is just one of the remarkable things about migration physiology, as as Martha alluded to, how how animals are bulking up with with fat to be able to make these journeys and how if they don't have the fat then they have to burn muscle that's another really interesting topic in in migration so it, it brings together both what we might call um, basic questions in biology those that we're just trying to understand these remarkable feats of the animals and how they do it and also applied questions how can we help the or counteract negative uh, effects we may be having through human activities uh, weather related um, human infrastructure related natural disaster related uh, impacts that we're having how can we try to mitigate those to improve bird migration and, and migratory bird populations, which have been declining 
very uh, severely. There was a study out a couple of years ago that estimated there's been a decline of about three billion with the bee birds, migratory birds, since 1970. My goodness. Yeah. That's that's unreal. And Wismer had, if I remember right, like at least 300 birds that were found on on their land. Is that right, Martha? Yeah, there were a large number of birds found on White Sands Missile Range. And they were they were throughout the region as well. But um, there was really a large effort reporting and um, looking for mortalities on White Sands Missile Range. And so some of that may have been due to some of the lights at night in an otherwise dark desert sky. And so that's something that we're looking into. So when we turn to Los Alamos National Labs, what expertise will they bring to the program? So uh, Gene Fair is an ornithologist in uh, at Los Alamos in their natural resources program. Uh, and she's a works primarily on disease ecology, but also with migratory birds. And, and she's had a longstanding collaborative relationship with various people at New Mexico State, including myself, including Martha. And so as we thought about how to broaden the impact of this program and, and the, the opportunities for our students beyond just NMSU, she uh, was one of the first people that came to mind. And so it's really her, her expertise and her access and know-how about uh, the federal job systems, the national lab systems that can really benefit our students. So our students will be having one aspect of our students, just to back up a little of our program, is that we are uh, expecting all of the undergrads and many of the graduate students to take on internships with uh, national or state agencies or national labs. And that's to broaden their practical real-world experience and their ability to take what they're learning in the classroom and, and put it into action in the field or, or in, you know, in, a, in an applied setting, as we might say. And so Gene uh, is really uh, a very helpful uh, entree into that world, as is Martha. Martha has uh, a wealth of contacts with agencies across uh, New Mexico and, and the Southwest. I would also add about Los Alamos National Lab is they have a strong team of ornithologists and they've been doing um, monitoring during migration and banding for quite a long time. And so Jean and the other folks on her team will bring a wealth of knowledge to this collaboration. I'd like for each of you to kind of speak a little more about how students, we, we talked a little bit about internships and things like that, but how are students going to benefit from this their participation in this program, what are the long-term benefits? So there are, for students, there are long-term and short-term benefits. And so as Tim just mentioned, most students will, especially the undergraduates, will be involved in summer internships. And the whole idea with this program for both undergraduates and graduate students is to really mentor those students so that they find their pathway. Where do they want to go with their career? How do they develop that career pathway? And how do they move themselves forward? Whether it's ultimately transferring into a position with a federal agency or a nonprofit or moving on to a graduate program and then transitioning into that position. But the idea is to work individually so that they develop 
that and guide those students so they develop that individual pathway. And so undergraduates and, and graduate students, in addition to having that summer internship, they'll also be involved in research on the ground related to migratory birds. And with the undergraduates, they'll have mentors and not just the faculty mentor, but also the graduate mentors. And then the graduate students will have not just faculty mentors, but also professional mentors. And right. collectively, these teams help these students develop that pathway and move forward to a productive career related to natural resources and maybe migratory birds. Tim, is there anything you want to add? Um, sure. Uh, just there are a few more. Martha outlined the really key elements. There are a few more specifics. The students will be um, participating in uh, professional development workshops that are organized through our Student Success Center here at New Mexico State to try to give them tools for uh, moving on and science communication, learning to write grant proposals, for example. They'll also get the opportunity to put that into action uh, at conferences and writing uh, small grants to, to support their research. And then another aspect that we're excited about is that they'll learn to communicate with the public. So we're going to have an outreach activity, Migration Days, probably in the fall, that will be focused on the local community and and teaching people about avian migration. And so a lot of details are yet to be worked out about that. But but stay tuned. We'll be we'll be having our first one sometime this fall. The program is starting this spring, which uh, the semester hasn't quite started yet, but and maybe it's too early. But what are you hearing from the applicants that have applied? There's a lot of excitement among our applicants. We had a really strong cohort uh, of students to apply. And I think one aspect that we haven't really highlighted yet uh, that that is part of the, the support from the USDA is that uh, USDA is really hoping to create a diverse cohort of students, one that represents the full diversity of New Mexico. And so we've been able to do that with both our grad student and our undergrad cohort. And so uh, some of these students have been working with us prior to this. And so when this opportunity came up, they, they were in the know and they leapt for it. Uh, others are students that have been looking for this sort of research opportunity and it really seemed to fit their interests. So everyone has been enthusiastic and everyone we've offered uh, a place in the program has accepted so far. So from our standpoint, it's it's we're really looking forward to kicking it off next week and uh, to a really active, uh, vigorous spring semester. Martha, what are you looking forward to? Well, I'm looking forward to, you know, to working with such an, a really an exciting group of students, looking forward to getting involved in some of the field activities and to really starting to work with students to develop that pathway forward. And we are starting it off next week with that We're hosting a natural resources career fair for students across NMSU. And we have representation from eight federal agencies that will be present interacting with students about careers and internships in natural resources. This partnership is really focused also on teaching leadership skills. Can one of you talk a little more about that? Sure. I mean, I think leadership can be uh, defined a lot of ways. 
and, and one way that I think is important in in both science and applied and basic science is bringing knowledge to the table and and knowing what you're speaking about and being able to to then put that into action. So so the research projects that the students will be conducting, to my mind, uh, are really about learning how to address a question, uh, how to think about, uh, frame a question, think about how you would answer the question, and then go about uh, doing that. Then the other aspect that will be important is the, the working in teams. So Martha mentioned our, the team mentoring, but, but students will be, undergraduate students will be working with graduate students uh, often in teams. And so I think learning how to work effectively within a team is, is really a critical element of leadership. And then the professional development workshops that focus on communication, both written and oral communication. And, and we will have a specialized class in that for the students. That is a, a critical part of leadership. The leader has to be a good communicator. And then finally, one last thing is that uh, this is an already established class in our curriculum, but we have a science and ethics course, and we're asking the students to take that because we believe that a, a firm understanding of, of scientific ethics and the issues surrounding science and society is important for these students to become leaders in the future. Martha, is there anything you want to add to what Tim said? Uh, I think you pretty well summarized summarized what our intent is in that in that realm. Students, you know, also in leadership, just learning to develop and move forward with a project and and to communicate what that project is with others and to start to articulate where or, and identify where they want to go with that career and how can they play a pivotal role in that. Is there any way to know if what occurred in 2020 could or will happen again? I guess what I would say is I think it's it's likely to happen again. And we are seeing, we've seen this past some other mortality events in other parts of the country, certainly um, along the East Coast in uh, New York City. They had some mortality this past fall related to weather and also building collisions and we're going to see more and more. We're seeing more and more natural disasters across the country related to changing climate. And along with that, we will see additional mortalities with birds and other species as well. Tim, did you want to add to that? Sure. I, I would like to pick up on that theme. So the, the title of the grant actually uh, includes the words disaster ecology, which we think of as a, as a sort of a new and developing field, uh, a scientific response, if you will, to the observed fact that natural disasters are increasing in both frequency and severity. There are more of them and they're, they're worse. And so just on NPR this morning, I heard that uh, last year that we had 18 different events that cost in terms of their impact on human lives and human infrastructure over one billion dollars. So 18 separate events. And that's more than ever before. And it's projected to rise as uh, Earth's climate continues to warm. It's not just the average that's warming, but we're predicting increased uh, frequency and severity of extreme events. So uh, the sorts of wildfires, hurricanes, tornadoes, unusual rain events, unusual winter events, uh, drought, all of that uh, can be connected to the disruption of the Earth's climate by human activities. A and atmospheric so, rivers? Atmospheric rivers, exactly. Yeah. Just the latest example, really. 
and so I think in the, in the larger sense, yes, we're ornithologists and we think about birds and we, we like to, to think about them as the canaries in the coal mine, as you know, literally, <laughs> they are a finger yeah. of what's to come. And but but in the larger sense, we're hoping to prepare a diverse cadre of, of future leaders who can think about uh, trying to understand the underlying causes of these disasters and the impact they have not just on human lives, but on the natural world around us and and hopefully begin to, to understand how we can try to mitigate or roll back this damage. What role, Tim, this just kind of occurred to me, but what role do birds play in showing us kind of like as being the harbingers, you know, as being the canary in the coal mine, you know, it, as far as knowing kind of where we're heading and seeing those patterns as they start to develop? So, so migratory birds are taking a hit from, from all sides. Uh, it's not just extreme climate events. It's also uh, loss of habitat from agriculture or shrimp farms or building subdivisions. Uh, there's pollution, uh, light and um and sound can both interfere with navigation and with uh, their ability to to uh, carry on their population to reproduce successfully. Um, and, and then there are all the, the various uh, issues with climate change. And migratory birds in particular get sort of a double hit because they can be impacted both. Typically, we think about temperate zone, northern temperate zone in the summer, and then they might fly all the way down to tropical Central America or South America during the winter. And so they can be impacted at both places. And I think that it's those multiple effects and they have often very specific stopover points in between that they're hitting. And if they lose one of those or something's altered in one of those stopover points, it can really wreak havoc with their ability to migrate and to reproduce successfully. And so I think that's why we've seen this historic decline over the last uh, 50 years of, of some 3 billion birds. So this decline is really it's been happening for a while. It's been happening because of multiple effects, uh, but climate change is definitely a big part of it. Martha, uh, is there anything you want to add to that? I think Tim summarized that very well. I just add other issues like energy infrastructure, um, disease and feral animals, specifically feral cats or bird populations. All of these collectively interact to really have a um a large impact on bird populations kind of a, a diminishing effect yes taking a broader view is there anything that you want to say about how this relates to climate change certainly the changes in weather patterns are going to affect food abundance and food availability that's enormous and then also it will affect the um the quality of some of the vegetation structure that these birds depend on for um, for their habitats, whether it's migration, um, breeding, or wintering. So those are, you know, so the availability of food, the availability of um, of habitat, of resources for, for breeding or 
we're migrating, stopover, those types of things. What else, Tim, would you add? Yeah, I think that's that's all true. And, and one particularly pernicious effect of, of climate change in regards to migratory birds is that the earth is not uh, warming at equal rates across the entire globe. So it's warming much faster in the northern temperate zones than it is in the tropics. And that's led to some mismatches that this has been demonstrated by various scientists, mismatches in timing, uh, the, the cues that these animals use for knowing when they need to fatten up, when they need to leave the, the uh, wintering grounds, when they should be arriving at the, uh, the breeding grounds in the north. And those cues have become sort of wrong, miscues. And so they're arriving later than they should uh, up in the, the northern zone uh, because it's gotten warmer faster. And so spring is advanced and they, they arrive in the northern zone after the big flush of insects that historically they've used to feed their young. And so um, that that has been, I think, one of the more subtle, uh, interesting and perhaps one of the most devastating effects of climate change is, is how it just messes with the timing of what these birds are trying to do with these long journeys. Do you think either of you being ornithologists, do either of you think that the birds will develop a, an ability to adapt? It's certainly possible. And the, the question is, um, can that adaptation occur at the right time scale? Quickly, so quickly enough. Right. Yeah. Sorry. And some species are more adaptable than others. Right. And in fact, it, the impacts can even vary within a species across different populations. There's some populations that might start in the same place in the tropics, but move to different places in the northern temperate zone, Alaska versus eastern Canada. And it's actually been shown that some of those populations are doing better than others simply because where they ended up or they're, they're changing their behavior rapidly enough to be able to adapt. Genetic adaptation typically takes a little bit longer, and, and so the question is, will there, are the changes we're uh, inflicting on them, are they too rapid for genetic evolution to catch up, really? Right. And I think that's a big concern. Will they stop in Seattle instead of uh, Anchorage? Exactly. <laughs> Martha, uh, Tim, what do you want to add that we haven't talked about? I guess I'll start off and say one thing. A lot of times people think, what can I do? What as a, as a citizen in, you know, Las Cruces or Doniana or wherever, what can I do to help migratory birds? And I think that some of the key things are, one is if you're planting, putting in plants, use native plants that provide a food and source. I would also say bird. keep your, um, your pets indoors and... You could also, if you have large windows that have window strikes with migratory birds, then you could um, you could put shadows or you put something out to kind of alert the birds that this is a this yeah, is a window, shades. not a yes, a pain, a, just a to alert them to the collision possibility. And then the other thing is, if you have lights, shield. You make sure your lights are in code. Shield those lights. And some of the things that, like our our local Audubon Society is working on, is a lights is a lights out program here in the uh, Las Cruces and Doniana County, so that we make sure that the different um, businesses are compliant with the lighting code. 
In addition to those excellent suggestions, I, I want to add if people are, are really excited about birds or have already been doing a lot of birding, that uh, there's really a, a place for the information that, that those people gather. So the Cornell Lab of Ornithology has this app called eBird that allows people to input their sightings of birds when they go out on a birding trip. And that information has actually turned out to be tremendously valuable for scientists who can collect it over the entirety of the U.S., really over the entirety of the whole world, and uh, use it to begin to understand some of these long-term trends. And so um, the Mesilla Valley Audubon, again, is a great place to start if you want to get into birding. They have birding, regular birding trips that are open to everyone who wants to come. Thank you so much for your time today. I, I've learned way more about birds than I ever thought I could. Well, it's been a pleasure, Damien. Your questions were great, and it was really uh, just a great opportunity to talk about the program and to talk about birds in general. Thank you so much for inviting us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Reporter's Notebook. We also have a newsletter sharing reporter stories about, well, about how we report stories. You can find all of our reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. A huge thanks goes out to Tim and Martha for joining us this week. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and many of the places you find your favorite podcasts. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me. You can also find all our local reporting brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in Las Cruces at www.lcsun-news.com. For all of us at the Sun News, thank you for the privilege of your time.